Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On June 22, 1922, one of the highest-ranking British soldiers of the age, the Field Marshal Henry Wilson, was shot dead in London. Two members of the London Irish community were arrested near the scene, and within hours the British authorities had established both men were IRA volunteers. The assassination had a profound legacy. The killing of such a high-profile figure would have caused controversy but in the fraught political climate of 1922, it was incendiary. It took place just six months after the British government had ratified a treaty with the Irish Republican movement, leading to the establishment of the Irish Free State. It was widely assumed in London that a faction of the IRA opposed to that treaty, who had been occupying the four courts in Dublin, were responsible. However, the British government's insistence that the new Free State government would take action against these IRA volunteers caused controversy in Dublin. Would Michael Collins, the president of the new government of the Irish Free State, order an attack on his former comrades, even if they were on the opposing side of the treaty? However, the alternative to this course of action was even worse in the eyes of many. The British withdrawal from the Free State was not yet complete, and with a garrison of 5,000 soldiers still in Dublin, the British government in London threatened Collins they would act if he didn't. On June 28th, six days after the assassination of Henry Wilson, Michael Collins took decisive action when he ordered an attack on the four courts by troops of the National Army of the Irish Free State. While tensions had been building for months, this act ignited the Irish Civil War. Consequential as the assassination of Henry Wilson was at the time, it has been shrouded by an air of mystery and controversy ever since. While we know the identity of the two IRA volunteers who killed Wilson, it remains unclear to this day who actually ordered the operation. Persistent claims over the decades allege Michael Collins himself was in fact the man who ordered the assassination. In this podcast, I'm joined by historian John Dorney to discuss the killing of Henry Wilson 
Over the next 30 minutes or so, myself and John will discuss who exactly Henry Wilson was, why he was killed, and then who might have been responsible. At the end of the show, John also discusses a fascinating project he's involved in to document the dead of the Irish Civil War, which is not as straightforward as you might think. But first, if this is your first time tuning into the show, my name is Finn DeWire and this is the Irish History Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and the wider history of Ireland's revolutionary era, you'll be interested in my exclusive supporter series on the Irish Civil War with Dr. Brian Hanley from the History Department of Trinity College Dublin. Now this is available for supporters of the show on Patreon and Acast+. The second episode in that series is now available and it looks at the life of Michael Collins and his central role in the opening phase of the war up until his death in August 1922. That's exclusively available for supporters of the show on patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast and Acast Plus. Now to today's show. My guest, as I mentioned, is historian John Dorney. Lots of you will know John from his website, The Irish Story, and his podcast, The Irish History Show podcast. If you haven't checked them out before, they're an invaluable resource on modern Irish history, and I've links to both in the notes below. To start the story of the assassination of Henry Wilson, we began with an overview of the man who was one of the most senior military figures in early 20th century British history. As John explains, he wasn't just a significant figure in terms of Irish history, but broader European and even world history at the time. Well, Henry Wilson was a very significant figure in British military and diplomatic circles outside of his connection with Ireland. He was the chief of the Imperial General Staff just at the end of the Great War. And before that, he was the liaison between the basically the British High Command and the French High Command in the First World War. Not only that, Henry Wilson had been one of the forgers behind the scenes of what was called the Entente Cordiale, which was the alliance between Britain and France made in the early 1900s. And of course, this is one of the things which made the First World War possible, the alliance between Britain and France. Now, in an Irish context, Henry Wilson was an Irish unionist. So he was from a long-established Protestant family, landowner family in County Longford. They had some roots in Ulster previously, and sometimes uh, Wilson would call himself an Ulsterman. But I suspect this might have been more of a kind of a political statement, given that the stronghold of unionism was in Ulster in the north of Ireland. But Wilson was not an Ulster unionist in the sense that he wanted the exclusion of Ulster or part of Ulster from a self-ruled Ireland. He was a unionist in the sense that he thought it was a very bad idea for any part of Ireland to break away from the United Kingdom in any shape or form. So he was against home rule, which, of course, is the limited self-government. It was promised before the First World War. And there's a famous incident, which many people will know as the Curra Mutiny or the Curra Incident in 1914, where the British officers in the military base at the Curra were asked to go to the north to garrison spots in Ulster in the event of trouble with the Ulster Volunteers, so the Unionist armed paramilitary organisation. And Wilson, behind the scenes, is very influential in telling officers that they won't have to do this if they don't want to. And a lot of officers say that they won't do it. Um, there isn't quite a mutiny in the sense that the orders aren't actually issued, but the government kind of backs down from issuing the orders. So Wilson is very much behind that. Now, as I said, his role in the First World War is of like world historical significance. But at the end of the war, he's the chief of the Imperial General Staff. And you have to picture the world in 1918. It's not like the world now in the sense that Britain is the foremost power in the world. 
it's not America, it's the British Empire. And the British Empire, of course, is multiples bigger than Britain itself, both in terms of scale and population. So this is an extremely powerful position. And Wilson is thinking, when he's thinking of Ireland, not only in Irish Unionist terms, although he is an Irish Unionist, but in world terms. So Wilson's view uh, is that if Ireland becomes independent, so you have, of course, Irish separatists in Sinn Féin forming the first Dáil in January 1919. If Ireland is made independent, this would be a bad example to places like India, to places like Egypt, where they have to deal with revolts, to places like Iraq, where they have to deal, which is occupied by Britain at the end of the First World War, and where there's a revolt, many parts of Africa, and so on. So Wilson's point of view is there should be no sign of weakness in Ireland. He's very impatient with the British government, headed by Lloyd George, who is a liberal, and Wilson is a conservative, like most British senior British army officers. And Wilson's position is there shouldn't be these half measures in Ireland. There shouldn't be um, martial law declared in part of the country or martial law in other places. It should be full military rule. You should have strong military reinforcement sent to Ireland, execute however many people that you need to, and that would settle the whole thing. And he's disgusted, really, with the idea that the War of Independence, as we call it, or the Irish Rebellion, as, as he would have called it, is settled by a truce and a treaty with people he regarded as terrorists and murderers. He said the thing to do with these people is to put them down. He's absolutely disgusted with the cowardice, as he calls it, and the surrender of the treaty. Now, he resigns as the chief of the Imperial General Staff. Not, not really over that, although he's very disgusted with that, with the politicians in that case. But he resigns and his next job is as military advisor for Northern Ireland, which he regards as the one part of Ireland which has kept the faith as he sees it. You know, we, Wilson regards himself like Sir John French, another senior military figure at the time, as an Irishman in his own way. But by that means, he means member of the British Empire, loyal Ireland, and so on. That's, that's what he thinks it means. So he becomes the military advisor to Northern Ireland after the treaty. OK, well, Henry Wilson was a significant figure in terms of the British Army. I asked John why the IRA targeted him in particular in the summer of 1922. There were, after all, several high-ranking British Army soldiers who had served in Ireland. Another field marshal, John French, for example, had been Viceroy from 1918 onwards. John now explains why Wilson was hated above all others. Henry Wilson was an especial hate figure for Irish Republicans of the era. So there isn't really a modern-day equivalent. I mean, maybe Margaret Thatcher in more modern-day Irish Republican mythology, but something close to that. Henry Wilson is regarded as the epitome of British military imperialism, right? The man who wanted no compromise in Ireland, the man who wanted to put it down by force, and so on. You know, Wilson's defenders in modern era would say, well, Wilson was against the blackened towns and the auxiliaries and the destruction of towns and villages and property and reprisals. But that was only because Wilson wanted it done by regular military forces. He regarded these people as undisciplined and so on. So that's one aspect of it, that Wilson is the arch imperialist. Secondly, there's his role in Northern Ireland. His role in Northern Ireland is as military advisor to the new Northern Ireland government, which comes on stream in November 1921, just before the treaty. Now, the nationalist story or narrative about what's going on in the north and particularly in Belfast at the time is the pogrom. So the attack on the Catholics, defenseless Catholics of Belfast. It's a bit more complicated than that. There's dead on both sides. But Wilson is seen, especially after the treaty. So the violence in Belfast gets worse after the treaty. There's about 300 people killed there in the first five months of 1922. Wilson is seen as the man who's in charge of the pogrom. So that's the second thing. He's the arch imperialist who was also in charge of the pogrom. And it's interesting, this is not just an Irish Republican circle. So it's not just in the IRA of that era or Sinn Féin. 
you see it in the mainstream press, the Irish Independent, the Freeman's Journal. They say, you know, this man Wilson is the enemy. He's like the Antichrist, you know, to an Irish nationalist circles. John gave this example to explain just how reviled Wilson had become in wider Irish society by 1922. Your listeners might have heard of the general strike of 1922. So it's a one-day general strike against militarism. So basically, it's the labour movement trying to prevent the civil war in Ireland. And they call the workers of Ireland out and strike to try to head off civil war in the south of Ireland between the pro and anti-treaty factions. Well, at the rallies in Dublin, one of the things that people say, Cahal O'Shannon and Thomas Johnson, both of the Labour Party, say is Henry Wilson wants civil war. You know, Henry, this will be a boon to the enemies of Ireland. So the Labour people as well, they have the same perception that Henry Wilson is the arch enemy. So why would he be targeted by the IRA? Well, one reason is because, you know, the IRA, even the pro-treaty faction of it is secretly at war with Northern Ireland and the anti-treaty faction both more or less openly. But that's one reason. And Henry Wilson is the, is the military advisor. But the second reason possibly, though, is that Wilson is a hate figure across the board in Irish nationalism. And it may just have been a move to kind of unify opinion, a military move that all sides could have agreed with in this time when the IRA and the Republican movement had fractured over the treaty. OK, we can move on to the killing of Wilson now. There's no disputing who actually pulled the trigger. It's no plot spoiler to say the two IRA volunteers were Reginald Dunn and Joseph O'Sullivan. The controversy emerges, however, when we look at who actually ordered the killing. But first, John explains what exactly happened on the day in question. Well, Wilson was back in London and he had attended a ceremony for veterans in memory of people who'd fallen in the Great War, who died in the Great War in British uniform, of course, attended by veterans. And ironically, I suppose the two gunmen who targeted him were uh, Dunn and O'Sullivan, so two London IRA members, both of English birth. One of them had lost a leg, actually, in the Great War, which didn't help with the assassination attempt. But they followed him home to his house. And apparently, think on the doorstep of his house, if I'm not mistaken, they drew their handguns, their revolvers, and they fired a number of shots at him uh, and he was killed. Now, Wilson, of course, in, in British, you know, he's a very high profile figure. He's, he's a war hero as far as most of the British public is concerned. So the first thing that Dunn and O'Sullivan had to face is a hostile crowd and hostile policemen. Now, the policemen, of course, in London were unarmed. The London Metropolitan Police, they gave chase to them. One or two policemen were actually shot and wounded by Dunn and O'Sullivan before they were finally caught. And the crowd set upon them and seemed to have been about to, to tear them limb from limb until Further police arrived and, you know, they were arrested after having got a bit of a beating, I think, from the crowd. But, you know, several Republicans in Ireland remarked um, if they set up this assassination, why didn't they chose a guy with two legs to carry it away? And it seems to have been it does seem to have been a kind of an improvised operation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Dunn and O'Sullivan had effectively been caught red-handed. They were tried a few weeks later, and with little question of their guilt, the only issue at stake was how severe their punishment would be. When they were found guilty, the two were sentenced to death and despite pleas for clemency, both men were hanged on August 10th, 1922 in Wandsworth Prison in England. Before their execution, neither man shed much light on the operation or its background and who had ordered the killing of Wilson. At the time, it appeared the anti-treaty IRA were the ones responsible. The British cabinet certainly believed this to be the case. However, the anti-treaty IRA denied involvement. Over the last century, there has been endless speculation that Michael Collins himself may have had a hand in the killing. In our discussion on who was ultimately responsible, John began to explore the various possibilities by setting out the backdrop of how Wilson's killing was viewed in England and Ireland. Well, the killing of Wilson will always be controversial, not only on its own merits. So, you know, this is one of those things also where British and Irish history collide. So, for example, British military historians and enthusiasts for British military history were kind of upset at a recent book about Wilson by Ronan McGreevy, so an Irish journalist, which concentrates on the assassination, you know, because they say that this didn't give credit to the great man, you know, for his war record and so on. But it's a big deal. It's a former field marshal of the British Empire and he's killed. So it's always going to be controversial. But the reason it's really controversial in Ireland is that it basically sparked the Irish Civil War, right? So this is not really up for debate anymore, the fact that it caused the civil war, because the, the provisional government, the pro-treaty government, didn't want to say that this was why it was. But the correspondence is very clear. There's a letter from the Prime Minister Lloyd George to Michael Collins, the head of the provisional government. And it says, essentially, these people, the anti-treaty side, the, the rebels, they call them, and the four courts, they're behind the assassination of Henry Wilson. And it's time for you to move against them. Our patience with is on this is at an end. And this is essentially what starts the civil war. So to save the free state and the treaty, if you like, Collins and the provisional government, they do attack the four courts. There's several other intermediate events in Dublin, but this is the main reason. Next, he looked at the idea that Michael Collins was involved. While this sounds bizarre, there is some circumstantial evidence to suggest he had a hand in the event. So a very strong element in Republican narrative of the period, anti-treaty Republican narrative, is that Michael Collins had Wilson killed and then the British ordered him to attack the four courts. So it was the whole thing was Collins fault. Now, those are two kind of contradictory things, you know, so Collins on the one hand ordered the assassination and then attacked them on British orders. But this is very strong in the Republican narrative after the Civil War. Now, is there any truth in it? It's not, it's never, it's not really clear. And Michael Collins was a great man for not writing things down. He was IRB man, an old Fenian, if you like. He was used to kind of secret conspiracies. And this is also true with regard to his attitude towards the North and the joint offensive that was supposed to happen there and so on in 1922. But with regard to Wilson, Dunn and O'Sullivan, who were leading members of the IRA in London, do seem to have met Michael Collins in the months leading up to the assassination. Equally, they met Liam Lynch, the head of the anti-treaty IRA, and they also met the Four Courts faction, who were anti-treaty IRA as well. P.S. O'Hegarty, who was a pro-treaty Sinn Féin TD, seems to have thought that Michael Collins gave the order before the truce that they might assassinate Wilson and that it was only carried out afterwards. 
That's not clear, but there's certainly a lot of rumours. Personally, I don't know enough about the specifics of these events to come down on either side. But John raised a few points that certainly seem to suggest Collins had a connection to Dunn and O'Sullivan. What is certainly clear, though, is that after the men were caught, and of course they were tried and sentenced to death, Collins sent over a members of his squad, so his intelligence unit, the hit unit, if you like, of his intelligence department, to try to rescue them. So these are veterans of Michael Collins' own unit, Joe Dolan and Frank Bolster, were sent over to scout a rescue attempt, so something reminiscent of the Manchester Martyrs back in the 1880s. That didn't happen because the Civil War broke out in Dublin. Um, but those men say in their Bureau of Military History statements that they think, yes, you know, the boss, their boss, Michael Collins, did have something to do with the assassination. Beyond that, we're probably not going to know. But another very interesting thing is that in the wake of the Civil War, uh, Mary Dunn, who was Reginald Dunn's, was one of the, the shooters, of course, Reginald Dunn's mother, had moved to Ireland. And two members of Collins' intelligence department, who are now Free State military intelligence officers, Tom Cullen and Liam Tobin, visited her and gave her the deeds to the house where she was living in County Wicklow, I think. And the, the, they had bought out the house and she was given it. And this is kind of a semi-official visit. This is a very strong indication that some people in the pro-treaty establishment felt it was their responsibility and they did have something to do with it. Now, that's not conclusive evidence. However, as is the case with any theory of this nature, there's also evidence to suggest his opponents in the anti-treaty IRA were behind the killing of Wilson. There are other theories the anti-treatyites had something to do with it, because as I said, Dunn and O'Sullivan did also meet with the anti-treatyites before. It's possible. I mean, one of the things about another reason why the civil war broke out, perhaps, is that the garrison in the forecourts, which is an extremist faction of the anti-treaty IRA, had said just before that they were going to declare war on Britain. And they actually delivered this message formally to the provisional government saying, we're not going to touch your people, but we're going to attack the remaining British forces in Ireland. So there's some in Dublin and obviously in the north. And so it that would fit, you know, if they wanted to if they wanted to hit a high-profile British target. But on the other hand, they don't seem to have known anything about it. So that's another theory. While it appears to be something that will never be settled conclusively, as you think about it at home, it's worth factoring in John's explanations of the motives and reasons why Wilson was killed. It certainly framed the way I thought about it. Why would anyone have done it? Well, I think the possible motivation would have been because Wilson is such a hate figure in nationalist Ireland. He's killing him is kind of could have been intended as something that all sides would agree on. But on the other hand, who would have the motivation for this? Well, Michael Collins, despite the fact that he signed the treaty and so on and believed in the treaty as a stepping stone, was involved with joint actions with the anti-treaty IRA in attacking Northern Ireland at the time. So it's not the, beyond the bounds of possibility. You know, we could have been behind this. On the other hand, Michael Collins also depends on the British for arms and for money to keep his new government and his new army going. So it's it's very hard to see how Collins thought he would have benefited from this, but that's not to say he wouldn't have done it because, you know, Michael Collins was in some ways an impetuous man. The anti-treatyites for, for the same reason, but, you know, with the opposite goal, with the intention of provoking a British response, maybe they did, but the indications are that they didn't know much about it. Now, there is a third theory that Dunn and O'Sullivan acted on their, off their own bat. And Peter Hart, for example, strongly argued this. This again is possible. And there's there's theories again that this was an old order that had been issued before the truce and they decided to act on it at that point in late June 1922. Now putting whoever killed Wilson to one side, the assassination had enormous ramifications in Ireland. John explains how it led to the outbreak of the civil war. The British government essentially wrote to the provisional government, the Irish provisional government, 
And the letter is there. You can read the letter verbatim. Um, it's in the Devil Era papers, ironically, I suppose, among others. But what it says is, our patience is at an end. We can no longer tolerate these rebels who you have in Dublin and have hold themselves up in the forecourts, the centre of the legal system, and they're threatening to declare war on us, either in England or in the six counties, which is the term that they use, meaning Northern Ireland. And they say, we'll give you the necessary weaponry, artillery and air power if you need it. And we even will give you the gunners if you need them. But you're going to you're going to deal with these people or we're going to do it ourselves. Uh, it's there in black and white. So the the assassination of Henry Wilson is the one act that sets off the civil war. Now, it's possible it might have happened anyway. But the fact is that these are the sequence of events that set it off. So there's a two day gap. I mean, actually, Michael Collins didn't reply himself. One of his ministers replied. But in the gap in between the British ultimatum, the British general in Dublin, Neville McCready, was actually ordered to attack the four courts with the 6,000 odd troops. And he had artillery and he had armoured vehicles. He had an air squadron in what's now Dublin Airport, Collinstown Airdrome. And all of these were supposed to be used to basically pound the four courts into oblivion. But McCready, who had spent the previous two years as the commander in chief in Ireland, wanted nothing more than to get out of Ireland. And McCready had always said, actually, that, you know, the best thing we could do is some sort of political settlement here. So McCready basically writes back to London saying, I think this is a very bad idea and give the Irish one last chance to do it themselves, meaning, you know, the provisional government. And this is what happens. Now, we don't have really the detailed minutes of what the provisional government said. It appears that Arthur Griffith was really the hawk here because Griffith had never had much time for conciliation with the anti-treaty side, whereas Collins kind of viewed them as wayward comrades. But the situation that they were in was this was the choice between dealing with the four courts, who they hoped was just an extremist faction of the anti-treaty IRA. It could be over in a day or two or the certain knowledge that the British would retake Dublin. And then where would they be? The treaty would be lost. Now, there are a couple of other events that set it off. So there is a member of the Four Courts garrison called Leo Henderson, who was arrested on Bagot Street in central Dublin, seizing cars, actually from a business that was doing business with Belfast in defiance of an IRA boycott. He was arrested in the return. The Four Courts garrison arrested a general, J.J. O'Connell. And that was the proximate reason, as historians say, why the government opened fire in the Four Courts. They said it was to get General O'Connell back. But, you know, the documentary evidence makes quite clear that these arrests and these events in between were only consequences of the British government's ultimatum. And again, ultimately, it's the British guns, British artillery that they gave to the provisional government that made it possible. If you want to learn more about the wider Irish civil war, I've started a new supporter series over on Patreon with Dr. Brian Hanley from the History Department of Trinity College Dublin. The first two episodes in that series are available over on Patreon and Acast Plus now. While John and myself didn't have enough time to discuss the wider civil war, John did share details of a fascinating project he's involved with to document those killed in the conflict. It's not on the topic of Henry Wilson, but we discussed it because it's really interesting. Assessing whether or not a death should be considered a casualty in the conflict is quite complex. I'm currently involved in a project with UCC, University College Cork, which is counting the dead of the Irish Civil War. So there's been a project for the dead of the War of Independence up to December 1921. So we're going to try to count the dead of 1922 to 23 in South of Ireland in the Civil War over the treaty. And if people want to contact us, they can contact me. My email is on the Irish story. We're always appreciative of people who will give us extra information because it's very, one of the things that's been very poorly documented until this time. 
there's so many accidental deaths in the civil war like there's probably a third of the national army 900 odd who lost their lives or died in in accidents of various kinds you know due to the appalling state of training that they had there's also a, quite a few who died of illness and there's a big thing because people in ireland in those days died of things like tb and pneumonia so the fact that they died in uniform should they be counted as civil war casualties maybe maybe not because the sanitary conditions and stuff and a lot of the barracks were very bad in the case of the anti-treaty side they were out on the run in, in bad conditions but i suppose the thing to do and it's still in its embryonic stages Finn, is we're going to count different categories we're going to count combat deaths we're going to count deaths by accident and deaths by illness but the only thing i will say is like all wars have non-combat deaths so for example if you take just the Boer War, to take a random example, this is the last war where, where in terms of the British army, there were more non-combat than combat deaths. But out of the 20,000 men who died in British uniform in South Africa during the Boer War, I think I'm right in saying that only about 8,000 of them died in action and the remainder died of disease of typhoid and typhus and, and stuff like that. It's it's a bit of a problem. I mean, if you, you might be slightly inflating the figure, but on the other hand, you know, conflicts generally do count these figures. And there's also the question about whether to count the deaths in the north. So, for example, the death of the dead of the Irish Revolution project obviously was 32 county project because there was no border for most of that period, and the border only came in at the very end of it. And our project is really to document the dead of the Southern Civil War, but you can't ignore the fact that there was also very intense violence in Belfast and to a lesser extent around the border before the Civil War, where the treaty formally broke out. So, there's all kinds of questions, but the project is still in this kind of embryonic stage right now. But what What's going to happen, I think the UC, UCC plan is that we'll be mapping the project, the geography department in UCC. And at the end, when the project is done, which will probably be sometime in next year, then there will be a book documenting also the casualties of the Civil War. Finally, before we finished our interview, I asked John about where you could find out more about the killing of Henry Wilson. So if you want to read more on the Irish story, we have an article about the day that Wilson was killed. And we have Two follow-up articles by Martin Harkin, very interesting articles on the Dunn and O'Sullivan families and their struggle for state recognition. And it's a very interesting story because, of course, the state didn't want to admit that these were sanctioned actions in the first place. But gradually and over the years, it was kind of slightly recognised that the Dunn and O'Sullivan families did deserve compensation. They were given various forms of pension and so on. We also have an article about the first days of the Civil War and we have several overview articles about how the Civil War came about and the course of that conflict as well. John also records an excellent podcast with Cahill Brennan called the Irish History Show Podcast. I've links to that in the show notes as well. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's well worth checking out. There'll be no show out next week, but I'll be back with some fresh research of my own on March 15th. Until then, Sloan. <laughs> <laughs>